Let me, let me give you questions to start out with. Um, we're at tables-ish. So maybe talk it through with your table. Give me your answer. Question number one is this. Does God love you? So, so maybe that's predicated on the assumption that may or may not be correct that you're a Christian. Um, so if you've never trusted Christ, then the question I want to ask is, does God love Christians? Um, or if you trust in Jesus for your salvation, does God love you? Do we need time to discuss? Do we need an answer? This table, what are we thinking? Yes. Yes, this table, what are we thinking? Okay, question two. With that same disclaimer, I'm kind of aiming this at Christians. Uh, Fix it if that's not your reality. Question two. Does God like you? Maybe take a minute to talk about that. Not does God love you, but does God like you? Okay, where are we at on this? Just because we're short on time here. This table, where, what are we thinking? Yes. Yeah. Yes? Just, just yes. No. Okay. Well, what do you guys think? Yeah, it's a harder question, isn't it? Not does God love you, but does God like you? Um, because here's one way. Here's a good way. Here's a faithful gospel presentation, right? Um, that you guys were all born to, in the image of God, to worship God and to obey God and to rule on the earth and on God's behalf, submitting to his goodness and enjoying that same goodness. But by nature and by choice, you turn, instead of being oriented towards God, toward sin, right? When I say by nature, I mean that you're the son or daughter of Adam, a sinner. When he and Eve trusted Satan instead of trusting God, they corrupted themselves and everybody that was born after them, right? Like dogs have puppies, cats have kittens, sinners have sinners. So you are by nature a sinner. But it's not just who you are, right? It's what you do as well. Because you're a sinner, you love to sin. You lie, you're selfish, you're arrogant. You use other people for your own desires rather than sacrificing yourself for their good. Um, So where your orientation should be towards loving God and loving neighbors, instead you hate God and you love yourself and you use others towards that end. Which means that God being holy... He's not able to dwell in the presence of sin. That means, you know, he is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And if you're darkness, then you guys are eternally separated. He can't be with you. But more than that, God is just as well, which means he punishes every single sin and every single sinner. So if you're a treasonous rebel towards his goodness and his glory, he's not going to wink an eye at your sin. He's going to punish you eternally with perfect justice in hell. So that's the human situation. That's our predicament. A sinner who is inevitably going to receive the judgment and justice of God. But, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Meaning Jesus, the innocent son of God, took on the guilty verdict that's on our lives. He paid the cost with his own life. God's justice is upheld because sins have been paid for in Christ. 
And if you trust in Jesus alone as your salvation, you'll be saved from God's wrath because the justice has already been meted out. And because faith unites you with Jesus Christ himself, that means God actually adopts you into his family because when he looks at you, he doesn't see sinful Dan or Josiah or whoever. He sees Christ Instead, so instead of seeing a rebel, he sees his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So that's why we should trust Jesus for our salvation. And so the, the, well, the, the next steps for us is obviously trust Christ so that you're saved. Um, that, that's obvious. But the problem, I don't want to say problem. I'm going to say problem. The problem of presenting the gospel that way and only that way is that it doesn't tell the whole story because it, it doesn't answer the question of does God like you, right? It says God's not going to damn you if you trust Jesus, but it doesn't answer does God like me because what I understand from that explanation is that, okay, God hates me and he wants to send me to hell because I'm a sinner, but because I'm hidden in Christ, when God looks at me, he doesn't see Dan, he sees Jesus. I'm, I'm you know, covered over in Jesus. It's like a, like a Jesus Snuggie is wrapped around me. And so when God looks at me, we kind of pull this little trick on him where it's like, oh, look at Jesus, not Dan himself, because Jesus he loves, Dan he's repulsed by, which maybe makes us go back to reconsider that original question. Does God love us or does God love his son? Right? Because maybe your answer is, I guess God doesn't actually love me. God loves Jesus and therefore I'm hidden in him and so God loves me. Right? It, maybe it's, it's like, um, what? Like when your brother or your sister is invited to a party and you're not. But as long as you show up with your brother, they have to let you be there, right? It's not like, hey, you can stay, but your brother has to go home. So you're not actually wanted there, but because you're with somebody who is, you get to stay. Does God tolerate us by association? Or does God actually love slash like us? Right? You see, see what I did to that question to kind of change it a little bit? Is God's love simply by association? He doesn't actually love you or like you, but you're united with Jesus, so you get in. Or does he have joy, delight, love, like for us as individuals? What, what do we think? You don't even talk with your tables a second. Okay, great. Yeah, I think you guys are both on the right track, coming from different angles. We're going through redemption. We're going through the nature of God. Um, I love it. And so what we're going to talk about for, oh gosh, 20 minutes, 19 minutes. Okay, it's, it's this idea, we are individuals, right? We've been talking about all these things that we are as humanity. Um, here's what I want us to understand tonight. Let's, let's just front load this for when we run out of time. Big idea. God created us all as different, as individuals. We have different personalities, different gifting, different interests, different experiences. And this is a very, very good thing. But more than that, when we're saved, when we are clothed in Christ, this is what we were just talking about, 
as we are united with him and grow and mature to be more like Christ, just because we're becoming more like Christ doesn't mean we lose that distinction or peculiarity. Uh, Christ in me doesn't actually diminish me. Um, so let me give you, I'm going to take two routes to get to that place. We'll go with a quick route and then we'll do the scenic route and hit a couple more ideas. So let me, let me show you this quickly. Galatians 2.20. No one has Bibles. Anybody have Galatians 2.20 memorized? That's like a commonly memorized verse. Yeah. You got it? You got the whole thing? And now the life I live in the flesh. Yeah. yeah. I know there's more to it, but I, I can't recall it. Okay, so let me let me give us this whole thing. Galatians two twenty says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." Which sounds like it's arguing against what I just said. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So two things this verse does. First, um, it personalizes the gospel, right? Uh, Martin Luther once said, the sweetness of the gospel lies mostly in pronouns. Pronouns such as me, my, thy, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ Jesus, my Lord, or son, be of good cheer, thy, your sins are forgiven. Meaning, I often have this logic, right? For God so loved the world, I'm part of the world, Therefore, God loves me. I'm in this nameless, just this nameless face in the crowd, but the crowd's going to heaven, so that's good enough for me, right? Um, but that's not what the, the verse says. That's not how the Bible talks. It says, we have the Son of God and the Father, by implication, right? They all do the same thing. It's doctrine of inseparable operations. The Son of God loved who? Me. And gave himself for who? For me. So technically, that's the Apostle Paul, yes. Um, but it's true for all who trust in Christ. God loves me or you individually. The, the person, Dan Seidelman. And second, it helps prove that being in Christ doesn't diminish my Danness or you know your Laura-ness or whatever you would say. Because Paul says he died. He's been crucified. But yet, that doesn't mean Paul's done away with because he says he lives or Christ lives in him. So, you know, I died with Christ. It seems like his individual individuality is kind of obliterated, and now only Jesus matters. But Paul of Tarsus doesn't stop being Paul of Tarsus. Because look at the next sentence. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. It's still Paul who lives. And he lives in the flesh, in the body. It's flesh and blood. So like things like, Paul's language doesn't change when he comes to Christ. Um, you know, it's not like Jesus lives wearing a Paul costume, but Paul's still alive. His sin nature died. His righteousness came alive, but it didn't change Paul's hair color or blood type or his Tarshishian accent. That's probably not a word. Didn't change his favorite foods or his kind, favorite kind. It might have changed his favorite foods. Because maybe he tried baby back ribs and found out they were delicious. Um, what were we saying? It did change his name, though. did change his name. We got that. Um, 
but it didn't change his favorite color. Like the things about Paul, Saul, whatever, bad example, fine. You get the point. Like, so the question is, does God love you, not as this faceless person number in the crowd, but actually you? Yes. And is it good to be particular, to be individual? Yes. Why? Because Galatians 2.20 says so. That was the fast route. Let me take you on the scenic route too and hit a couple more ideas on this. Um, because you guys know I'm never going to do a six minute you know, like I'm not satisfied with simple answers. That's just like the way I'm wired. That's one of the things that makes me, me, makes me unique. Like I, I've been created with uh, this kind of insatiable curiosity where I have a hard time stopping until all my questions have been answered. Um, and I feel like I'm like, I remember one time I got home from work. I'm like, Chrissy, I just listened to this fascinating podcast. It was on like the history and the engineering of elevators. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, it's like how stuff works. And it's like, listen to how an elevator works. And she's like, Dan, you're insane. But she's probably right. Um, but that's just how my mind works. I, I want to understand things. Um, so let me give you a couple more you know, ideas that might help in this idea that we are individuals. So number one, God seems to like making individuals. Like we talked back at the beginning of the series, September, October, about how we're handcrafted by God. Right? I think I used the illustration of how you can go to Target and get a $4 coffee mug, but Chrissy and I would always go to the art fair and get the $24 handcrafted mugs because they were worth more and they were none are the same. Like nobody has a beige Kentucky mug like I do or a green 16-ounce mug because they're hand-sculpted. Um, and then we talked about how God doesn't mass produce people. He artisanally handcrafts every single one of us. That's why Psalm 139 stands true for all of us. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, add to that the fact that there's currently about 8 billion of us on the planet, which means God has made 8 billion billion different combinations of people. Um, some people get, I have no idea how you come to this number, but I'm like, how many people have ever lived on the planet? And they're like, 117 billion. Okay, somebody just posted that on Reddit and got away with it. But let's say there's been 117 billion people ever created. They're all different. It seems like God really likes making individuals. He likes, he likes making diversity, different experiences, different desires, different personalities. Like, you guys know there's, there's no, like, ideal Christian personality, right? That, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're going to be crucified with him and, and raised with him. But that doesn't diminish your personality and experience. So every Christian is going to grow in things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, but those things are going to look different depending on who you are and how you function. Uh, let me, two examples. Yeah, we can do two. Uh, it can seem in the church like extroverts are more Christian than introverts. Anybody ever feel this? No. Wonderful. I'm alone here. Great. Um, you know, I'm an introvert. I, I, I like <laughs> big groups where I'm up in front or 
small groups where, you know, there's four of us or three of us or two of us. This size groups I hate. No offense. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I don't do good with a small crowd. I, I either want to be teaching like this or just like a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And so it's like, man, if I was extroverted, I could flourish so much more in the church. Um, but that's not true, right? I mean, there's extroverted things I'm called to do, you know, share the gospel, disciple others, love my neighbors, love you guys. Being an introvert doesn't change it, but maybe it changes how I go about those things, right? Because being extroverted is not the goal. It's not that extroverts are more godly than introverts. It's how do you use the gifts that God has given you, the particularity that he has made you with, to be faithful, right? Um, so maybe don't think you're more godly if you're an extrovert or that you're less godly if you're an introvert because like personality types are just how we've been made. It's not one's more holy than the other. Or maybe, you know, where I'm on the other side of the equation, it's like in a church, we can often think that like the academic types are more holy than the I hate reading and studying types. I don't know what you call you people. Um, like, I'm in, I'm in the first one. Like, I have this heightened sense of curiosity. I, like, go in my office. Not now, because you'll steal things. Um, but later. And, like, you're going to find a ton of books. On my coffee table, there's probably three or four books. Um, on my shelf and my desk where I haven't put it away, there's probably seven books on my desk right now that I'm reading. Um, some for myself, some that I'm reading for, you know, this lesson, men's conference coming up. Um, Tonight when I go home, I'm going to jump on the exercise bike for 20 minutes. And while I do that, I'm going to read a book. If I'm exhausted, I'm going to listen to a podcast of a lecture or theology or something. But like, what if you don't like learning? What if that's not you? What if you're not a bookish person? Does that mean you can't grow to love God with your mind as much as someone who's wired more like me? Of course not. Because where in the Bible does God say, hey, the goal of Christianity... Holiness looks like being an academic, academian? That's nut. Like a white chocolate academian nut. Cookie. Um, scholarly. Right? Maybe we think the church elevates one over the other. And if we do, like, the church is wrong here. There's no personality type that says readers are more holy than non-readers. Again, it's how do you use the way God has wired you to be faithful to what God has called you to? like God's going to call you outside your personality comfort zone. That's just how he works. But it's, it's this Romans 6.13 kind of principle, which says, don't present yourself to sin as in, or don't present your members, your, your body, to, how can I read this? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you all have brains and hands and feet, and you can either use them for unrighteousness and serve sin, or for righteousness and serve God. It's not, you know, change what you've been given, but change how you use them. Um, so God seems to like making individuals. And also, God seems to like saving individuals. Um, So I'm just trying to save us time here. In John 10, we read this. Um, Jesus says, um, 
I'm the good shepherd, and of that shepherd, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out into green pastures. And then later he says, I know my own, and my own know me. Which means Jesus knows his people. He knows you. He knows me. He knows us as individuals. He loves us as individuals. He gives his life for us as individuals. Jesus didn't die just generically for whoever, but for individuals. Like, a lot of times we can get kind of squishy and manipulative and emotional here and be like, you know, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus still would have died for you. That's how much he loves you. And like, I'm not into emotional manipulation. And the Bible doesn't talk about hypotheticals like that. But you know what the Bible seems to point to when it talks about Jesus loving his people? It seems to point to the fact that if you were the only person on earth, that Jesus would still die to redeem you because he knows his own by name. That's how much he actually loves you. And so who did not grow up, who is not growing up in church right now? Most of you guys are. Um, Yeah, I think one of the problems that we have, that church kids have, is... We mess this up by thinking. Okay, let me give you a principle here. So I'm like summarizing in my mind as I go. You ready? Here's the big principle to help your life. The Bible begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. We tend to think that sin is the most important thing about us and not that we were created in the image of God. Or to say it another way, redemption, the gospel, the cross, whatever you want to put there, Jesus, however you want to say this, redemption does not earn us God's love. Like, Jesus died and I trusted him, now God loves me. Rather, redemption is the manifestation of God's love, right? So it's not Jesus died, therefore God loves me, but the Bible presents it as God loves me, therefore Jesus died. Because the death of Jesus is what it takes for God's love to overcome your sinfulness and bring you back home to his family. So back to the original question, does God like me? Does God love me? The answer is yes, of course. Whether a Christian or not, God's love is upon you. He created you to enjoy him and for him to enjoy you, and he sent Jesus for you. But if you're a Christian, then you have this extra measure of God's love because God's creative love doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Like, justice still exists. But if you trust Christ, then there's also this saving love, a special love, where you will actually dwell with him and him with you personally for all eternity, individually, but not alone, forever. And, and that's, a, that's a glory of the gospel, and anybody can get in on it. So, so God's love exists, which sent Jesus to the cross because he loves individuals. It's not the cross that earns God's love. All right, so three minutes. Let me finish this. Um, in this series that we're doing, I'm trying to present, you know, per- being a person is a good thing. It's good news to be human. Um, the way that God created us when we live in line with the grain of the universe, it's, it's for our good. It's for our blessing. When we talk about individuality, we don't always feel that, right? Maybe you wish Christianity took away your individuality 
because then you could just fade in the crowd and disappear because there's this tension, right? Where we want to walk kind of on this knife's edge between being ourselves, whatever that means, and conforming to what people want us to be, the current social trends, um, right? We want to be ourselves and we want to fit in, especially at your age, still at my age, but definitely still at your age. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you guys know him? He was a German pastor. He got killed trying to assassinate Hitler, which is a fairly cool way to die. Um, I don't think it was like in the act, like had the knife in his hand, but plotting to overthrow the Third Reich. Um, but he was a pastor. This was five years before Hitler even came to power. He was 22. He was preaching to a group of teenagers. And he decided to tackle this question of, who am I? All right? If we're individuals, that's the next question. You are you. Okay, who am I then? And he found his answer in Luke 17.33, which says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So being you know, a couple years older than them, he's 22 at the time, he knew this was the driving question. Who am I? Because probably around, if you're in high school, you probably experienced this, middle school, maybe. Um, in adolescence, our identities, we begin to see this gap in them of the way I present myself and the way I feel about myself, right? Um, maybe your teachers, your parents, your friends, whoever think like, oh, you are capable, you can do anything you put your mind to and you're super conf confident in it. And then you look at yourself and you're just like, uncertainty and anxiety and you fear that people are going to find out that you're just faking it the whole time. Um, and so there's this separation of who we appear to be and who we feel to be. Um, he called it the separate self. And he said our outside selves are usually pretty polished, but our inside selves are, are not. Uh, quoting him here, he says, is that me? No, that's not me. Well, it is me for in me are these seething and surging things. Um, and so the, the evil, I mean, again, five years before Hitler, he wasn't concerned so much about the evil outside of him in Germany, but the evil within his own soul. He, he said, misery of human existence seizes our hearts for the first time. And we ourselves seize up in our distress in our unredeemed state. That was the problem. Like, what do I do when the outside of me and the inside of me feel so far apart? And the common answer is, well, know yourself, right? That's what the Greeks have been saying for 2,000 years. But that makes it worse, right? Because we see the separation. We lie to ourselves. And so Bonhoeffer concludes, so we are and we remain unknown to ourselves, known only by God. But then he continues and he says, but, but if we can't know ourselves, then we start trying to create ourselves, right? We focus on who we are and try and mold ourselves into the person we want to be. Um, it, what's that? Our, our current culture. Oh, yeah. And um, so we turn inward. We focus on ourselves. If we're Christians, we try and polish our souls up to look the way that we want to look. And so everything is turned in on us, focusing on me, trying to make my identity, which, by the way, is the way I've described sin a thousand times this year is the self turned inwards on ourselves. But Scripture doesn't call us to kind of this moral polishing of our souls. 
and calls us to something different. So he says, to escape the anxiety of knowing thyself, he says, let your passion be for another. Submerge yourself in service and sacrifice for the beloved, and you will, in some incomprehensible way, know that we have been created anew as another, new, better self. Or, if you lose your life, you will gain it. But if you focus on saving your life, you'll lose it. Luke 17, 33. And so he says, if you give away your life to loving and serving God by loving and serving others, somehow when we do that, we find who we are. And if you're just going to focus on your own individuality, then you're going to drown in the question of who am I? Focusing on yourself brings chaos, but serving others brings calm. So give away yourself in service to others, to, to, to God and to others, and use your individual giftings and experience and interests and desires and strengths and weaknesses to serve others and bring joy to them, just like your individualness, your individuality, brings joy to God. Because as Christians, our primary identity is in Christ, but this doesn't mean that our family, our culture, or other particular experiences are irrelevant or diminished. Even when we're united together, growing towards Christ, we are still individuals. Um, so if you have thoughts, questions, we can stick around and talk, but let me pray and dismiss us so that you can get home and do homework or whatever it is you do.